It is great to be back with you guys. Uh, we had a couple of holidays since I was last here. One of them in particular was Halloween. I don't know what your, your view of Halloween is. I know Christians have all sorts of views about Halloween. Uh, I don't necessarily love the holiday itself, but I love what you get to do on this holiday. Uh, namely, two things. Uh, be around your neighbors, because in Arizona, everyone gets out of their house uh, for Halloween. It's great to, to kind of see who you're living around and everyone is out and about. That's great. The other thing is it's been a real joy uh, to have a memory with my kids. And as our kids have gotten older, it's, gotten, it's become really fun uh, to do Halloween with them. And we know that, you know, there's going to come a point where our kids are embarrassed by us and they don't want to, you know, be with us all the time. So we just, my wife and I just decided, you know what, we're going to savor it while we can. So we dress up on Halloween with our kids. I don't know if you, you guys didn't do this, but we just thought, you know what, we're going we're gonna to do it because eventually this is going to embarrass the snot out of them, and we'll use it as leverage. When they think that they're too cool for school, we'll show them pictures you know, of us together. Uh, but this year we decided, let's get as many people in on this as we can. So I invited my sister and her husband, as well as my parents, and said, hey, let's all dress up with one theme. So that made 10 of us total, and we thought, hey, what would be really fun? And, and so we all became characters from Neverland. So 10 of us all themed out with one theme. And, and again, if you've ever tried this, this, this is a little tricky to get uh, 10 costumes that everyone can agree with. Uh, but I want to show you a picture of my family. This is 10 of us uh, dressed up as Neverland characters. Now let me just kind of explain who's who. On the left there is my sister and her husband. Uh, and, and then along with my uh, four-year-old son, Matson, below them, uh, they're Jake and the Neverland Pirates. If you have little kids, you might know this show. Then in the middle, I'm Peter Pan. Uh, my wife next to me is Peter Pan's shadow. Yeah, that's right. If you're a Peter Pan fan, you can appreciate the awesomeness that that is. Uh, the little baby she's holding is TikTok Croc. Uh, and then our, our six-year-old below us, Gavin, is uh, Captain Hook. Next to me is my little daughter, Adeline. She is Tinkerbell. And then my parents, my dad is Mr. Smee, and my mom is Tiger Lily. So we had this whole thing decked out. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was a lot of work. A lot of work. Uh, and again, I'm a huge Peter Pan fan. If, you, if you've seen the movie, you know the story. Uh, we decided to have some fun with it. So uh, my wife and I decided, especially with the, the whole shadow idea, to, to play it up a little bit. So here's a, a couple photos of us uh, having fun with the shadow concept. It's, it's more awesome the longer you look at it. So you kind of got to appreciate it. Uh, the most hilarious part of that is there was one of those pictures last night that Greg said, um, you know, he's like, that's cool that you, you, you did Michelle and then you had a real picture of you with your shadow. I said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, not all those were Michelle. I said, Greg, all of those are Michelle as my shadow. And he literally didn't think all of them were. But that's how good, evidently, we are with optical illusions. Those are all my wife and I. Uh, and we're having some fun with that. But what was so fun that night is walking around as 10 people from Neverland is that people would come up, uh, upon us and they would see like one or two and they're like, oh, Peter Pan, Captain Hook, oh, that's great. And then they start looking at the others and they're like, Oh my gosh, it's, it's this and this. And they would start realizing like we're all the same, you know, story. And it was, it was real fun to watch people kind of figure it out. And then really they'd get to one or two that they couldn't figure out. Like who, who's the baby supposed to be? Like TikTok croc. Like, oh, I get it. Or, you know, a lot of people would go, um, what, what's Michelle supposed to be? What's this girl supposed to be? And we're like, oh, it's Peter Pan's shout out. And they're like, brilliant. But it took them a while to figure it out, right? And I just loved that, that experience of walking around the 10 of us and, and watching people figure out what the masks represented and kind of who was behind the masks. And as I was reflecting on that, I realized that's what we're doing all, all the time. Uh, not just on Halloween. We're looking around at people and going, who are you really? 
know, who are the people around me? Who are my friends really? Who are my coworkers really? And, and we're looking at the masks that we often put on and, and looking beyond it and saying, hey, I want to know who you really are. And we do it with God as well. We look at God and go, God, who, who are you really? Like, who are you? And I've, I've heard these things about you and I've read some things about you and, and I've believed some things about you, but who are you really behind that mask? And I want to let Jesus answer this question today. I want to take you to a passage in John chapter 10, if you want to open there, or I'm going to put this on the screen just a moment. Uh, but in John 10, uh, Jesus is going to give us an image of himself. And so today's title of the message is The Good Shepherd. And we're going to look at this image that Jesus gives uh, to understand who is he. Now, depending on your background, I grew up in the church, and so as long as I can remember, I've thought of God or Jesus you know, as, as a shepherd, and, and it's a very common image to me. Um, but if you're, if you're new to, to this you know, faith experience, or, or maybe you're on the fence, and, and you're here, or you're watching online, and, and you don't know what you believe yet, I'm so glad that you're a part of this. Um, but uh, for you, you might actually have an advantage to understanding the point Jesus is making, because you have fresh eyes to see it. But we see in John 10 here a profound point that Jesus is making, and I want to unpack it in the moments that we have. In John 10, verse 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. And then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, he repeats himself, I am the good shepherd shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen and I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Now again, depending on your experience in church, this is either a familiar image to you or or not, but let's look at the point that Jesus is making. To do that, we have to take a little biblical journey through the Old Testament to to understand what would they have heard, the original audience, when Jesus made this statement. What was in their mind that they would have heard and they would have understood so that we can then figure out what does that mean for us today when we better uh, understand kind of the point that he's making. And so I want to give you a a biblical uh, look at shepherds. I'm going to give you five kind of uh, uh, points to write down, five big transitions uh, throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to fly through a lot of history. So if you're not real familiar with your Bible, I'm going to give you a history of the Old Testament really quickly. Uh, But this is going to give us a way to see the the role of shepherds uh, to get the the full point that Jesus is making. So if you want to write something down, we're looking at biblical shepherds. Number one is Cain and Abel. That's the first one to write down if you want to take notes. Now, now if you go to the Old Testament, the, the story starts with Adam and Eve, and they have kids, Cain and Abel. And if you know the story, uh, you have this, this sibling rivalry. But this is not just your normal sibling rivalry. You see, these two brothers both uh, present sacrifices of worship to God, and yet God likes one of them better than the other. And that's like, you know, parent no-no number one, right? This is, this is going to not end well. And, and so God looks on Abel favorably, and he looks on Cain not as favorably as, as he did on, on Abel's sacrifice. Well, this makes Cain furious, jealous. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to kill my brother. I'm so mad, I'm going to kill him over this. And this is a story that, that we know, and it's a, a very tragically sad story. But there's a detail to the story that you might not realize, you might not think about, and that's that the, the Bible tells us uh, what the professions were, what, what each of these brothers did for a living. This comes from Genesis chapter 4, verse 2. It says, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. What that means is that Abel is a shepherd, and his brother Cain is a farmer. 
This is significant because you have not only this sibling tension, but you have the tension here from the very first pages of scripture that we see all throughout it uh, of a shepherd and a farmer. And there's an inherent tension there. And the reason why that goes, this goes beyond just their family dynamics is that shepherds and farmers uh, compete over how to use a space of land. Now, a farmer is going to take a, a space of land, he's going to cultivate it, he's going to water it, he's going to tend to it and, and return to this one plot of land and, and really pour himself into this land. Whereas a shepherd, not necessarily as concerned with the land as, as his flock. So he's going to pour into his flock and he's going to move his flock wherever he can to get food for his flock. So if you've got one spot of land, it cannot be used for both a shepherd and a farmer because they're, they're going to use it for different purposes. The shepherd is going to have a flock that would eat you know, whatever is on the land while the farmer is going to try to, to give it time to grow and raise up and cultivate it and produce something bigger later. But they, they can't coexist together. Now, in a world of multitasking, we have a hard time understanding uh, these mutual, you know, mutually exclusive kind of concepts. I was thinking about this the other day uh, on Thanksgiving. Uh, our, our first uh, family gathering that we had that day was lined up for lunch and so we had a, a morning together as a family we were sitting i was uh, sitting in the living room with our, our kids watching the thanksgiving day parade and my wife said hey i'm gonna go to starbucks and get a drink uh while i'm gone if you could do some of the dishes in the sink that would be great It'd be really helpful and i'll be back in a little bit i said no problem honey i, I got that covered so she left to starbucks Again, I'm sitting on the couch with, you know, my oldest is next to me, other kids are playing, and we're watching Thanksgiving Day Parade. Well, she happens to be gone extra long on this trip because she runs into someone she knows at Starbucks, you know how that goes. And so she's gone for like 45 minutes, which is plenty of time to have the dishes done uh, by the time she gets home. Except that I forgot to do the dishes while she was gone. So when she gets home, I'm in the exact same spot on the couch that I was in when she left. So she opens the door, and before this is even has a chance for me to kind of sink in, like, oh, I forgot something, she opens the door, and my six-year-old next to me, Gavin, says, hey, mom, dad didn't do the dishes. Uh, Excuse me, Judas, what was that? And I'm looking at him, and he's like, what, what? I'm like, let me get this straight, son. You have been thinking for 45 minutes about the fact that I am not doing the dishes. That's the only thing you're thinking about. But not once did you actually mention that to me. Like, hey, Dad, remember how Mom wanted you to do the dishes? No, it didn't come out of his mouth. He just sits there stewing on it and pounces on me. You know, right at the moment. And so then we had to have one of those key father-son moments where I explained to him, like, rule number one, don't get dad in trouble. All the rules are second to this rule. Don't get dad in trouble, right? And so we have to have this moment. But it's just a reminder. There are some things you cannot do together. You cannot do the dishes and sit on the couch and watch Thanksgiving Day Parade. If, you, if you're curious, both of those cannot happen at once. You have to choose one or the other. This is what we have to understand as we read this story and we understand this concept. You cannot have a shepherd and a farmer both using the same plot of land. There is a natural tension there, and you see this tension played out uh, subsequently throughout Scripture. So number one, we see Cain and Abel, this tension of the brothers. Uh, one's a shepherd. And so what this means, though, don't, don't miss this, is that the, the, the first recorded murder in biblical history is a farmer killing a shepherd now this is significant you have a farmer killing a shepherd number two on our list is egypt you fast forward you get to a guy named joseph 
And Joseph, if you read the story, is such a fun story to read in scripture. Uh, just the highs and the lows and, and things go from good to bad to worse to even more worse. I mean, it's just bad, 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 bad. Things keep happening. But the whole time it says that God is with him through all of these, these roller coaster events. Uh, and so he, he's this, this great kid. His brothers sell him into slavery. He, he goes on the line. He gets falsely accused. He ends up in prison. Uh, but eventually, he ends up as the second in command to Pharaoh. So he's not, he's not born Egyptian, but he becomes you know, the, the part of the ruling class of Egypt. And he has this moment where his brothers have to come to Egypt to get food. And it's, again, a great story. He forgives them. It's just unbelievable what happens. They have you know, this, this incredible moment. They're reunited. And then he invites them to live in Egypt with him. He invites his brothers and his family to come and move. But there's a problem. His brothers are all shepherds. The problem is that the Egyptians were farmers. So Joseph knows this is a tension. And he might have even been thinking back to Cain and Abel going, hey, I saw how that one played out. Let's avoid that. And so Joseph coaches his brothers on how to handle this, on what to say. And again, you might know the story of Joseph, but we usually kind of gloss over this part. This is fascinating. Joseph realizes there's a tension here. I'm trying to move my family to Egypt, but they're all shepherds and the Egyptians are farmers. So we're going to have a tension here, but here's how we're going to navigate this. You see how he solves this in Genesis chapter 46, verse 31. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and I will say to him, my brothers in my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. And notice what he says. The men are shepherds. Like he just boldly, bluntly gets that out of the way. You've got to know this. The men are shepherds. Make no mistake. They tend livestock. Thank you for clarifying. And they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. So guess who's coming? A bunch of shepherds. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer. Again, he is literally giving them the words to use when Pharaoh talks to them. Uh, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. And then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, notice this last line, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Why? Because Egyptians are farmers. And farmers and shepherds have different uses for the land. So because of Joseph's uh, brilliance and how savvy he handles this, he allows his, uh, his family to get the, the region of Goshen, their own area, uh, to be shepherds in uh, because they couldn't coexist in, in Egypt. And so, again, this is brilliant. He solves a huge problem because he addresses the tension and navigates it, and we see it uh, recorded in Scripture. Fast forward. Generations go by. A pharaoh uh, comes into power that doesn't know who Joseph is. And, and that Pharaoh looks at the, the Israelites and realizes there's a lot of people here. And they're not Egyptians, and they're not us, and they, you know, they might be a threat to us. And so he makes them into slaves, and they begin to cry out to God. God raises up Moses. Moses is called to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, and they begin wandering. And if you realize the wandering phase, and you've read that story, in some ways it goes really well, in some ways it goes really poorly. They have awful attitudes about it the whole time. They're, they're grumbling and complaining. But they survive, uh, I would say largely because of two reasons. Number one, because God supernaturally provides for them. He gives them food and water and, and takes care of them in that way. But also, at heart, they're shepherds. They know what it's like to be nomads, to, to work you know, regions and walk around and can kind of be on the move. They understand what that's like. And so they survive uh, through this. And then eventually they're going to get a land of their own. And they settle in. And then they don't have to be shepherds anymore. And they get to be farmers like everyone else was because they have their own land now. They have their own identity. They have their own uh, you know, established uh, nation. 
At this point, we see the role of shepherding beginning to wear off. Then all of a sudden, you don't see the high value. You don't see this as a part of their DNA. They kind of transition to what most cultures were. and They become farmers. And you don't see shepherds as a high value for them anymore from this point on. But there's a major exception. And if you know your Bible, you're thinking, well, there's one person in particular that, that seemed to talk a lot about being a shepherd. Number three on our list is a guy named King David. David was a shepherd, and David becomes king. But David is a rare case. And David is the exception that proves the rule. Let me read to you in 2 Samuel 7, 8. It says, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. God's like, look, David, make no mistake. You didn't rise to power through the ranks of being a shepherd. I took you from a lowly shepherd, and I made you king over my people. And the reason why God is, is making this really clear is because this is not a normal story. A shepherd wouldn't rise to power and just become king. God did something miraculous. There's a supernatural uh, going on here. And he's, he's alerting David to this. Now we have to remember this. Because the problem is when we read David, when we read what David wrote, we think that he speaks on behalf of everyone because he's king. And in, in one regard, he does speak on behalf of the nation. But what we have to understand is David uniquely saw shepherds different than the people of Israel around him. Because they were not all shepherds. David started as a shepherd. David's an unlikely story. You, you would not see many stories like this. And yet, it allows David to have a unique vantage point on God. David's the one that writes Psalm 23 that says, The Lord is my shepherd. And again, David can see it because David was a shepherd. That's been his experience. So he can relate with God like that. But when we read it, we have to understand he's not speaking on behalf of the collective thought of his day. In fact, let me read what one scholar said, Dr. Jeremiah said, the rabbis ask with amazement how in view of the despicable nature of shepherds, one can explain why God was called my shepherd in Psalm 23.1. The rabbis were, were, were you know, just confused and perplexed. Why is David using this image? This is not how we think of God. And yet again, David's story was different than everyone else's story. So David writes these words, but we have to understand he, he wasn't speaking on behalf of everyone. They would have been confused by this. They would have looked at Psalm 23 and said, huh, you're going you're gonna to use this profession for God? This, this doesn't really make sense. Fast forward, number four, uh, I just put Israel down because uh, you, you start to see the whole history and you see passage after passage of the view of shepherds continuing to decline, continuing to deteriorate. So where they once be, were shepherds, that was who they were, that was their DNA, then it becomes like, oh, we don't want anything to do with shepherds. And you see the image of a shepherd continually taking on a negative uh, connotation. Let me give you a couple examples. Zephaniah 2 verse 5. The Lord says, I will destroy you and none will be left. The land by the sea will become pastures, having wells for shepherds and pens for flocks. He's saying, look, this area, I'm going to repurpose this. And it's going to be so bad that it's only going to be good for shepherds to use. It would be like taking the, the area that you like to drive to on a Sunday afternoon for a picnic and you like to go have some time out and just enjoy the beauty of God's creation, wherever that is for you, if you suddenly found out the city is going to make it into a garbage dump. And you're like, no, I love that place. It's so beautiful. It's so incredible. That's the point he's making. I'm going to turn that that you love into a, a place just for shepherds to use. 
And the fact that he's using shepherds as this illustration shows us how low shepherds were viewed in those days. Let me give you another example. Uh, The prophet Amos, in chapter 7, verse 14, we see it this way. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd. And I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock, and he said to me, Go, prophesy to my people Israel. Now, for you music fans, Amos is saying, look, I started from the bottom, and now I'm here. You know, it's like that that perpetual rap story. This is where I was, and look at me now. And his point is the same as what David was saying, is God did this. God supernaturally pulled me from being a shepherd and told me to become a prophet. And Amos wasn't king, he just was a prophet. But the, the point is the same. There's no way you start off as a shepherd and your career options are included, you know, with, with being a prophet. That, that's, that's impossible. And so the point he's making is God did this for me. God brought me from being a shepherd to who I am today. It was a supernatural event. One more. Ezekiel 34 verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You might be thinking, why is he so angry about the, you know, the, the shepherds in Israel? This is not actually talking about shepherds. He's talking about the religious leaders, the, the bad religious leaders. And he's so mad. He's like, what image can I use to capture how, how negative these guys are? And he's like, I know. I'll call them shepherds. So to reference the spiritual leaders who are not leading well, he uses the image of a shepherd because everyone would have understood, oh, that's exactly what they're like. They're like shepherds. And again, you just see this is how they use the concept in Israel. They continued to deteriorate. It gets so bad that it goes from losing its appeal to losing its social acceptability. It starts off where it's like, hey, little Timmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a shepherd. No, you don't. Be an astronaut, kid. Go do anything else other than a shepherd, right? It goes from that to, hey, little Timmy, what would you do today? Oh, I met a new friend. Uh, oh, it's so-and-so. Um, his parents are shepherds. You're not going to talk to them anymore. You're not going to hang out with them anymore. We, we don't associate with those kind of people. See, that's what shepherds had become uh, as you see the, the, the history of Israel continue. And in fact, let me, let me share what Dr. Jeremiah describes. He describes what it's like to be a shepherd and how hard it is. And this helps us understand how it got to the place where it, it got to. He says this, The dryness of the ground made it necessary for the flocks of sheep and cattle to move about during the rainless summer and to stay for months at a time in isolated areas, far from the owner's home. Lots of traveling involved to being a shepherd. He said, hence, herding sheep was an independent and responsible job. Indeed, in view of the threat of wild beasts and robbers, it could even be dangerous. Sometimes the owner himself or his sons did the job. But usually, it was done by hired shepherds, who only too often did not justify the confidence reposed in them. Translation. He's saying it was such a hard job that many people who owned sheep didn't even act as the shepherd. They hired someone else. Because you had to be gone for long seasons of time, away from your family, away from all the comforts of home. You had to experience danger and and wild animals and and a threat of your own life. And many people didn't want to do that. And so as a result, uh, even though there was money to be made in sheep, a lot of the people that owned them would hire these hired hands that Jesus contrasts, you know, in John 10, these other people, and, and they would take care of the shepherds. And it's these guys that give shepherds such a bad name. 
So you already have the inherent tension between shepherds and farmers, but then you add to it these hired hands that a lot of them act like crooks. They would intentionally take these flocks to areas that they knew were farmland belonging to someone. Someone was cultivating it and they would just allow the flock to graze and then move on. And you can imagine being the farmer going, how on earth would you do this? You, you've taken my land. You've taken my livelihood. How dare you? And just the animosity rising because it's a hard job. And then you have these guys doing it that are giving it a really bad reputation. Uh, if you look at what the rabbis did culturally, it, it's fascinating to see the insight. Rabbis banned pasturing sheep and goats in Israel. They eventually just said, you, you cannot do it in Israel. You have to go outside of the city if you want to, to pasture sheep. It was like, a, 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 like an Old Testament smoking section. Like, hey, you want to smoke? That's fine. Go do it out there. You're not going to do it here with everyone else. We don't want to be around it. So if you want to be a shepherd, fine. Go to the shepherding section outside the city. You're not going to do that here. The rabbis made it illegal to buy items like wool, milk, or a baby goat from a shepherd. You're going, why would it be illegal? Because it was assumed to be stolen. You can't buy them. So you go, oh, yeah, I bought this. Where'd you get it from a shepherd? Really? You know they stole that. You know they didn't pay for that. There was no way everyone, anyone would believe a shepherd legitimately came upon those items. And so it was like, hey, you, you can't, it's off limits to buy from them because it's, it's, it's stolen property. And you understand kind of the, the reputation. Shepherds were not allowed to fulfill a judicial office. They couldn't be admitted in court as witnesses. They had no valid testimony. If someone got murdered and the only person to see it was a shepherd, it, you, have, you, have no one, you have no witness. Because a shepherd's testimony was not valid. Uh, because again, they had no credibility, no reputation. In the Mishnah, which is Judaism's uh, written record of the oral law, so again, you get a cultural view of what they believed. Uh, one passage describes them as incompetent. That was the word that kind of collectively they thought of, of shepherds as incompetent. But most interesting to me, another passage says that no one should ever feel obligated to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. Consider this. You could be walking. You hear someone crying in distress. They fall into a pit. You run over to them. You realize it's a shepherd in there. You have no moral obligation to help them. You could walk away, let that person slowly die, and, and feel no guilt, feel no shame, feel no remorse, because you had done what was culturally right. You begin to see that shepherds had become a subspecies of human. They were not the same as everyone else. They were lower than everyone else. Now, let's go back and see what Jesus says in John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. So if you're writing your list, number five is Jesus. Now, with everything we just saw about shepherds, why on earth would Jesus add his name to that list? And the answer, I think, is that in Jesus, what we actually see shatters what we expected to see. Jesus is making a point of his goodness, and he is saying, I am so good, I'm a good shepherd. Now, what we have to understand is when they heard the phrase, good shepherd, that would have sounded weird to their ears. That would have hung them up a little bit. They would have said, wait, what? That's not possible to have a good shepherd. They, they don't exist. I've never seen one. I've never heard of one. 
And Jesus says, I'm, I'm so good. I'm a good shepherd. This is an example of the upside down kingdom Jesus brought with him. He's turning everything on its head culturally going, hey, I know how you view these guys, but guess what? I am a good shepherd. If you read the gospel of Luke, there's this new baby that's born and it's God in the flesh and it's an incredible moment. And, and who do the angels tell? Some shepherds who have no credibility and who no one would have believed. And yet, the good shepherd had just been born. And it just seems appropriate to tell some shepherds about that and let them know, hey, something's going on here. You see, Jesus is radically redeeming the image of a shepherd, but it's more than that. He's radically redeeming any false, broken view of God. He's saying, hey, whatever you think about God, you need to understand, I am good. Now, just like shepherds had a bad image at that time, God tends to get a bad image. And that has happened all throughout time. And it's true today as well. Now, you can, you can ask your neighbors, you can ask your coworkers, hey, what do you think about God? And you're going to get all sorts of views. And many of them will be really bad views. And as a pastor, I get to talk to people all the time about their views of God. And people will just kind of share with me, this is, this is what I feel, this is what I, you know, I, I believe about him. And it breaks my heart. A lot of times I'll tell someone after hearing this view of God, I'll say, you know what? If I had your view of God, I wouldn't follow him either. But the great news is, I don't think you've seen the real God yet. I want to show you to him. I want to show you what he's really like. But we have to just stop for a moment and go, what do we do with the bad images? What do we do with the collective baggage that we put onto God? I want to read something. This comes from a book called The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, written by a guy named David Dark. And he, he gives us portrayal of, of this vengeful, angry God. Now, David Dark is a believer, and he doesn't believe this description, but he's giving words to what many people feel about God. The way many people view God, and I think it's worth reflecting on this for a moment. Now, in his story, he names the the God character Uncle Ben. And so I want to read about this Uncle Ben character. And I want you just to to use your imagination with me. Just consider what he's saying and, and, and think, you know, this might not be your view of God. But I promise you, someone close to you has this type of a view of God. I want you just to imagine what it's like to view God like this, to view Christians like this. And what do you do with that? And what's the problem with that? So here's what, what David Dark writes about Uncle Ben. It says, At the beginning of each week, there's a meeting in the largest house in town. Upon arriving, people get caught upon good fellowship and animated discussion of the week's events, with conversations straining in the direction of Uncle Ben. When a bell sounds, talk ceases. Everyone moves to the staircase and descends into the basement. Each person sits facing an enormous, rumbling furnace. Seated close to the furnace door, as if he were a part of the furnace itself, is a giant man in black overalls. His back is turned to them. They wait in silence. In time, the man finally turns around. His face is angry and contorted. He fixes a threatening stare of barely contained rage on each person, and then he roars the words, Am I good? To which they respond in unison, Yes, Uncle Ben, you are good. Am I worthy of praise? You alone are worthy of our praise. Do you love me more than anything, more than anyone? We love you and you alone, Uncle Ben. You better love me, or I'm going to put you in here. He opens the furnace door to reveal a gaping darkness forever. Out of the darkness can be heard sounds of anguish and lament. And then he closes the furnace door and he turns his back to them. They sit in silence. 
finally, feeling reasonably assured that Uncle Ben has finished saying what he has to say, they leave. They live their lives as best they can. They try to think and speak truthfully and do well by one another. They resume their talk of the wonders of Uncle Ben's love in anticipation of the next week's meeting. Now, I find this view of God both sad and funny. Funny because that doesn't remotely resemble the God that that I have seen and I've experienced and I believe. But it's sad because I know for many people this gives words to the feelings that they have about God. I know for many people, Uncle Ben captures the essence. And then they watch as Christians gather together on the weekend. They say, oh, go celebrate that Uncle Ben God. Go celebrate him. And you can imagine from their point of view what it looks like. But just think of the things that you may have been told about God. And how we try to wrestle with some of these and go, God, are, are you good? You, you may have been told that God causes everything to happen. So whatever pain you're experiencing, whatever tragedy and loss you've experienced in your life, yeah, God chose that for you. God picked that for you. He designed you to have to experience that. And you wrestle with, God, what do I do with that pain then? If you caused this, if you're responsible for this. You may have been told that God creates some people whose only option is to go to hell. He literally makes people for hell. And you go, God, I, I don't know what to do with that. And then when people are in hell, they're, they're suffering and they're being tortured forever. That, 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 like some awful, cruel ruler, they're continually forever being punished for what they did a long, long time ago. And yet somehow God is still loving. You, you may have been told that God is, is angry. And in fact, he was so angry that to appease his anger, he had to kill his son. And then as some sadistic father, he was actually happy after it happened. And you go, what do I do with that? Or maybe you have this view that God is just some violent, wrathful God, and he just can't wait to smite someone else next. And yet to each of these views of God, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Jesus says, no, look at me. Whenever you have a question, whenever you have a doubt, whenever you're uncertain what God is like, look at me. Because in Jesus, what we actually see shatters what we expected to see. And it's part of a process of figuring that out. If you'll permit me, I want to quote from one of my mentors. It's a guy named Greg Boyd. Uh, He writes in his book, uh, Benefit of the Doubt. He says, we cannot read the Bible as we would a cookbook, giving equal weight to everything it teaches. We should rather read it like a novel in which the final chapter forces us to rethink everything that preceded it. More specifically, we should read the Old Testament through the lens of the revelation of God in Christ, and especially through the lens of the cross, which sums up everything Jesus was about. See, what he's saying is, uh, just like Jesus redeemed the entire image of shepherds, that you can go throughout the Old Testament and go, what are shepherds? We're like, well, now, you know, at this point, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. He's redeemed that image. So also, he has redeemed any broken or bad view of God and say, no, you want to know what God's really like? Look at me. Specifically, look at me on the cross. And, and you don't have to wonder anymore. You don't have to figure it out. You can just see Jesus and go, that's what God is like. 
And we see this all throughout scripture, Colossians 2.9. For in Christ, the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. What's God really like? Look at Jesus. Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. He is God in the fullness. What's God really like? Is he good? Is he bad? No, he's the good shepherd who died on a cross for our sins, who bled for us, who sacrificed for us and said, this is how much I love you. That's what God is really like. And we understand this. It changes everything. It changes when we go, God, I don't know what you're like. God, I don't know how to relate with you. We go, God, I understand who you are. You are the good shepherd. And you want to, for me to experience your goodness in my life. So how do we respond then to the good shepherd? How do you respond when you have this view of God? When you understand the point Jesus is making of how good he really is? What do we do in response? I can think of two things. Number one, we trust him. We trust him. You know, God, when I don't understand something, I choose to trust you. When, when something doesn't make sense and I'm confused about what you're really like, I choose to look at the cross and go, that's what you're like. And so everything that I can't understand, I make sense out of through what happened on the cross. That's what we begin to do. We, we start with trust. God, when something happens in my life that I don't understand, I choose a default position of trust. Now, it's easy to trust God's goodness when things are going well. When you get that, that promotion, when you get that new job, you go, God, you are so good. When you're trying to start a family and you find out your wife is pregnant, God, you are so good to us. When that person who's been sick that you love and you've been praying for and just weeping over suddenly gets supernaturally and miraculously healed, you go, God, you are so good. But guess what? God is still good when none of those things happen. God is good when you lose your job and you go, God, what am I going to do? He's still good. God is good when you want to have a family and year after year goes by and you can't get pregnant. God is still good. And God is still good when you pray for that person and you know he's got it in his power to heal them and he doesn't. God is still good. And we default to trust. We say, Jesus, we believe you are the good shepherd. And when it doesn't make sense to us, we choose trust. I love the way that Tyler Huckleby said, he said, God cannot be made good or bad by our circumstances, but he can be our hope in every kind. So no matter what we're feeling, God is good. Jesus is the good shepherd and he's better than you can even imagine. So we choose to trust him. Second, we choose to follow him. Say, because I can trust you, I'm going to follow him. And, and, and to do this, we have to do, ask a question that, sadly, most Christians never, ever ask. If you want to follow Jesus, you have to ask a question. Jesus, where are you going? Right? Oh, I'm a Christ follower. Awesome. What do you do? I, what do you mean? No, I'm a Christ follower. Awesome. Where are you going? I, I, I go to church, right? Like, what do you mean? Like, we don't even think about these terms. But if we're going to say we're following him, where is he taking us? What journey are we on? What are we experiencing that's brand new and that's scary and that's an adrenaline rush because that's where he's led us to. You see, that's what it means to follow after him. And by this, I don't mean that you're suddenly going to know the destination of what God has for you. Hey, in seven years, you're going to have this job. You're going to be living here. You're be... No, you're not going to know that way. But what you will know is the direction he wants you to head. Not the destination, the direction. And so I can wake up today and go, God, where do you want me to go? And he says, left. All right, I'm going left today. God, what do you want me to do with my family today? I want you to do this. Okay, that's what I'm doing. It's a direction that he's heading me down. I don't know where we're going to go, but I trust him. 
So I follow him. And then you start going, God, where do you want to lead my family today? What, what, what decisions do we need to make as a family? And how, how can you lead us? God, with my career, how, how can you lead me? Which direction do you want me to go with my career? And again, this is not like getting paralyzed by the will of God. What, God, what's the destination? No, it's just the direction. God, nudge me. Just give me a sense of where your spirit is and, and give me my options. And I'll go wherever I sense you moving. And you begin to ask, God, with my business, what do you want me to do? How do I make these decisions? How do I come up with my priorities? You start following after God. We trust him and we follow him. Last summer, I had the chance to, uh, to volunteer my time uh, at our, our VBS at our church with one of my kids. I, I went to uh, my son Matson's class for the week. He's, he's four. And so I got to be one of a handful of adults uh, for a week with 34 four-year-olds. Yeah, you can imagine the experience that I had. So we get there and they're explaining to us how we, you know, have this and how, how we're supposed to, you know, carry on with all these little, uh, little hellions. And so they're like, all right, you'd start in this room and then you're going to go to the playground and you're going to go to the worship center. And, and, and this is hilarious. They say, hey, when you're walking from place to place, make sure you have the kids walk in a straight line. Yeah, that's adorable. Um, okay, so we attempted this, but at no point did they ever walk in a straight line. But we tried. And so they'd be kind of gathered together. They'd all be walking and they would start. In a straight line. And then they get a couple steps into it, and little Johnny's like, oh, look at that, that's really cool. What was that? And they're like, whoa, Johnny, come on, come on, get back in line. And then little Susie walks off, and they, they just start wandering. And you'd have to, like, do your best. Well, my strategy by day two, because I kind of figured out some of their names, was I would stand in the back of the line, and I would just call out their name and encourage them to get back in line. And call out their name and encourage them. And for the most part, it worked pretty well. But they would start wandering, I'd call them out, they'd get back in line and call them out. And, and I just kind of stood in the back, and it was constantly, I mean, I was exhausted by the end of this week. But I'm kind of going through and doing all this. But then I noticed with my son, Matson, uh, again, he's a little four-year-old. He, he wanders, he did it. Whenever he would be wandering, that, that I would get a disproportionate amount of his attention. So when I would say, Matson, he would turn, he would stop what he's doing, and, it, and he would dial in on me like, what is it, Dad? And I just watched like, wow, the other kids don't respond the way he does. That He responds uniquely to my voice uh, based on, you know, the way they react to me. And again, understand, there's lots of classes. There's other lines all around us. There's adults coaching, you know, shouting instructions all over the place. And yet when I would speak, my little son, Matson would dial in, give me my full, his full attention because he recognized the voice of his dad. And even though things were crazy, even though people were going every direction, even though there's loud volume, he can hear for the voice of his dad, and he trusts me. So if I say, Matson, do this, I don't have to argue with him. He's like, okay, that's what we're doing. I'll get back in line, Dad. I'll, I'll do that. And as I watch this, I realize it's that simple for us following God. See, as the church, we're all trying to walk in a line. We don't do a very good job. But God's going, hey, I want to take you somewhere. Let's all go together. And so we say, all right, God, here we are. We're going to walk together. And then we start walking. And then all of a sudden, I start wandering. And I'm looking around. I'm like, hey, this is kind of cool. And God's saying, Jeremy, get back with the group. We're going somewhere. And the question is, am I going to listen for that voice? Do I hear when he says, and I go, oh, right, I can trust you. The reality is some of you have, have wandered off from the rest of the group and Jesus is calling to you and you're not listening. Or if you are listening, you don't know if you can trust him. So you might hear him and go, ah, Jesus, I don't know. I don't know what you're like. But if we believe that he's a good shepherd, we listen for his voice and we trust him. And you go, okay, God, I know you're taking me somewhere. I'll get back with the group because I understand there's something happening here. You see, in Jesus, what we 
actually see shatters what we expected to see. He is that good. I want to close by reading Psalm 23. And this is a psalm, again, understand that David was before his time. David wrote this long before Jesus redeemed the image of a shepherd. But David uniquely saw this in God and and was able to see something long before others would would see the same uh, analogy, the same illustration. But I can think of no better, no more fitting way to close our time than just to reflect on these words. So I invite you just to consider Psalm 23, written by David, with this image. He writes, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. If you would, let's stand together. I'm going to pray to close this out. We're going to have our prayer partners down front. And I invite you, if, if you have heard Jesus calling you, you've heard the good shepherd saying your name, inviting you back, uh, maybe there's a chance to go, hey, I, I, I've been wandering and I, man, I, I, say, I need to listen. I need to respond. I need to, to trust him in, in this season of my life of what he's doing. We have people who would love to pray with you for that. And maybe for you, it's, it, you've never responded to his voice. You, you've always been fearful of, is he good enough? Can I trust him? And for the first time, you're believing, I, I can. I can trust him. And so I just invite you, if that's you, come pray with someone about that. And experience God's goodness for yourself. Let's pray together. God, thank you for showing us what you're really like. God, thanks that it's not a riddle. It's not up to us to be smart enough to crack the code to decipher what you're really like. We can see Jesus on the cross. We can see the act of of pouring yourself out for us, of sacrificial love. God, you write, you you explained to us that you want us to taste and see that you are good. God, may that be our prayer today that we wouldn't just hear about your goodness or read about your goodness, but experience your goodness for ourselves. So that even though we walk through the darkest valley, we have nothing to fear. Because your goodness will follow us all the days of our life. May that be true of us as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.